Welcome to Man Up, a podcast by men, about men, and for men who want to be better fathers, husbands, leaders, and followers of Jesus. Are you ready? Man Up. Yes, sir! Welcome, welcome, my friends. I'm your host, Jared Bowman, and this is Man Up, your podcast with all the encouragement that you need to be a better father, husband, leader, and follower of Jesus. We're a band of brothers. We're soldiers. We're comrades in arms, and we fight side by side, shoulder to shoulder, hand over hand, and mile after mile until each of us has helped the others attain the high calling of Jesus. And today, we are joined by somebody who is near and dear to me, a man by the name of Mark Roberts. He probably needs no introduction. He's been with the Westside Congregation in Irving, Texas for 30 years now, and many of you know him. But the reason why Mark is special to me is he's a fellow Tigger. Yes, T-I-double-G-er. In a world of darkness, I know that I can always turn to Mark to get a little better look at things, and he has been very helpful in my time as a preacher. The first time that I really interacted with Mark as a colleague, I had gone to a workshop that was put on by the Westside Congregation for preachers to develop their skills. It was something that congregation put some time and effort and resources into, and it was led by Mark and his good friend Warren Berkeley. And so I was not a young preacher at the time. I was sort of in the 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 later, I guess I can't say later years, but middle years of learning to preach. I've been preaching about 12 years, and Mark did a lot to try to iron out some of my wrinkles. And so I'm just going to ask, Mark, how you doing today, buddy? Hey, I'm doing great. I am energized to be on the podcast with you. appreciate it very, very much. I'm super concerned about issues revolving on authentic manliness. I've had a number of opportunities to work, particularly with young men in various settings like some of the Florida College camps and in gospel meetings. I'll try to get an extra session with young men. I'm also a girl dad. I have two delightful daughters, so I have seen it from both sides of the aisle, and I think we need more godly men who understand godly manliness, so I am delighted to be with you today. Let's talk about how to man up. Oh, I love it, buddy. But one of the things that we were talking about just pre-show You've been with a congregation now for 30 years, so you've seen a lot of changes. A lot of the young men that were probably little boys when you first came to Westside now have families of their own. There's actually probably kids that have been born in your time there as the evangelist are now beginning to raise their own children or well into it. You were instrumental in helping some of these young men develop their faith, and I know the reputation of Westside. I know you've got great people there. But just could you walk us down that road just a little bit? What is the correlation between our own personal faith and developing that faith and raising our sons to be men? I think there needs to be a heavy dose of leadership, both instruction, training, encouragement, and opportunities. And Westside's done a good job of providing good opportunities and supporting the preaching and teaching that, that is necessary to develop that. I believe men are called to be leaders, that that is the core and essence of what it is to be a biblical man. And so we're just teaching that and working on that from every angle that we possibly can all the time. I'm not sure I'm ready to go with one of those clickbait titles, this one thing, do this one thing, and everything changes. But 
Biblically speaking, when men don't lead, nearly everything else falls apart. And that's true whether that's a kingdom uh, back in the Old Testament, and, and that's also true when it's a congregation in the New Testament. It's true when it's a family, Old and New Testament. Men need to lead, to lead their families towards the Lord, to lead their families to do what's right, to lead their families to be prepared and provided and protected. And when men do that, a lot of really good things happen. And when men don't, a lot of really bad things happen. We just need to teach and train and talk that all the time. If we're going to talk about developing men into leaders, and we're going to talk about that being the essence of our faith, as men, one of the great expressions of our faith is to lead. What does a leader look like, and and what lessons are we missing that has caused such a, a, a drought, if you will, of leadership in so many places? Well, there's tons of discussion in the secular world and tons of literature written about leadership and what that means and how it acts, those kinds of things, because it manifests itself in so many different ways, and there's not any one particular model mm-hmm where you look and you say, this is what leadership has to be. There are quiet leaders, there are outgoing leaders, there are Tiggerish leaders, there are Eeyore-ish leaders. There's all <laughs> kinds of different leadership styles. And so that has made it harder to quantify these three things, these seven things. You've got to have this. And I guess what I would say about that is, is the Lord has made lots of different kinds of men with lots of different personality types, and leadership has to bridge across all of those. So there isn't going to be any one, oh, I didn't get the leadership gene, I'm out. If you're a man and you have a family, you mm-hmm. you need to be a leader regardless of whether you're shy and introverted or whether you're outgoing and gregarious. So I'm not surprised that there are different styles of leadership, but biblically, leadership is going to break down into into two areas, protection and provision. I think about all the leaders in the Bible, David, I think about Daniel, think about Paul, but especially think about Jesus. And as you look at Ephesians chapter 5, where Paul maybe says more there than, than any other place in the New Testament, it begins to even talk about roles in the home Paul is talking about the husband being the head of the wife in Ephesians 5 and verse 23. So here's a leadership role, and then he parallels that to Christ as the head of the church. So now I'm looking to Jesus. What does Jesus' leadership look like? And And Paul goes on then to say, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So there's protection, the willingness to sacrifice yourself just as Jesus sacrificed himself for the church. that's He protects us from mm-hmm. our own sin and providing forgiveness and protects us, of course, from the devil. So protection is at the very heart of leadership, and that's a huge part of why people follow a leader. That's a battlefield image. That's a quarterback in a huddle. The Not all the players on the team know everything that's going to go on. They don't even understand all the complicated nomenclature of this play call, but the quarterback knows, and he says this, 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 and then I just go do my job. That leadership, and the quarterback is protecting, the general is protecting. That's a huge part. The husband needs to protect his family. I ask young men... 
when they, they're talking to me, hey, I, I'm thinking about asking this girl to, to marry me. How, how do I know when I'm ready? And I look them straight in the eye and I ask them, would, would you step in front of her and take a bullet? Are you willing to die for her? And at first they always think I'm kind of kidding and then they see that there's no smile on my face and I'm not kidding at all. And they say, what do you mean? And I say, exactly Mm -hmm. that. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, are you willing to give yourself up for this girl? Are you willing to die for this woman? That's the start of leadership. Men need to have the kind of skills essential and necessary to, as I said, provide financially. That's a work thing, an employment thing. And, and spiritually, to lead the family to know God better and to serve the Lord in a better way. So you get protection and you get provision. Good leaders, they're not just good leaders in good times. Good leaders are absolutely necessary in the most difficult times. What I'm seeing right now, and, and part of this may be colored because I'm in the Pacific Northwest, is when you take the idea of men leading, whether you're talking about Christian men or you're talking about just men in general— stepping up and leading their families. What I see is that a lot of men are shrinking back from that role. We've taken on this notion of, well, it needs to be 50-50. I really can't lead because leadership is toxic or leadership is oppressive. You don't have a picture of Jesus painted as toxic or oppressive, that sometimes his leadership was gentle. He had compassion on the people that were coming out of the villages and they were bringing the lame and the blind to him. And they were like sheep without a shepherd because their leaders had failed them by being self-serving and worried about their own ego. Hard times reveal good leaders in a lot of ways. Just like hard times reveal, I remember talking about this after one of the, the, the young preacher workshops that you put on, hard times reveal good preachers. When you have difficult times, a lot of guys that aren't really there to preach the word sort of fall out of the work. And what have we learned In these last few years, we've arguably been through some very difficult times in our country. It's been a difficult time for the home. There's been a lot of stress going through pandemics and things like that. But what have we learned or what has been revealed about men in areas where we can absolutely improve? Maybe not one specific model, but areas where we can improve as leaders, as husbands, as fathers, as as followers of Jesus. I think the crises of the last couple of years has helped us see exactly what you were pointing to there about leadership. There's a concern always because of some of the forces in our society that we're somehow trying to baptize some version of male chauvinism and have this very authoritarian model where you're ordering everyone around and everyone has to do for you. And that is certainly what a lot of people think that leadership is all about, that I get my way And the leader, he has the corner office and the big staff and all of the perks that go with being the head honcho or the grand poobah or the CEO, whatever you want to call all of those sorts of things. And sometimes when we start talking about leadership in the church or leadership in the family, we start talking to men about being leaders. Maybe that's the image that they have. Maybe that's the image that that women have. And so there's pushback against that, of course, because that's not a biblical image. And that's why I'm working out of Ephesians 5, not to just use a very technical term. He is the grand poobah. There is no if, ands, or buts about that. Jesus is as grand as it could possibly be. And yet when he came here, 
he didn't tell the apostles now now somebody get a fan and start fanning me and someone get a bowl of dates and and some grapes and I want you four over there get one of those chairs and you can start carrying me around on your shoulders and I'll go everywhere in comfort and in luxury because I am the Messiah and I am the Son of God. Jesus gave up and that's called servant leadership and maybe I would argue that in the last four years the last couple of years with the pandemic especially doesn't matter which side of the political spectrum you are on, authoritarian leadership was a complete fail. Ordering people, telling people what to do in a very commanding kind of tone. And of course, one of the really sickening end of that was to see some of these authoritarian leaders, and again, this is on both sides of the aisle, who were telling everybody what to do and how to do, and then they got caught breaking their rules. That's not the kind of leadership that we're talking about biblically. That is not the kind of leadership that Jesus exemplifies. And in fact, biblically, if you go and look, the best leaders aren't involved in that either. David is in the front lines of the battle, at least until they tell him finally, hey, listen, buddy, you're Mm going to have to stay home. We can't risk you. But David always is in the front leading by example, and we're trying to teach men that what they need to do is not order everybody around, but lead by example, and that the leader in the home doesn't get his way. The leader gives up. Jesus gave up heaven to come here for us. Jesus didn't get what he wanted. If he had got what he had wanted, then 10,000 angels would have come And he at the cross. And he makes that clear in Gethsemane. Jesus doesn't get what he wants. And that's probably the, the breakthrough point. If men understand that instead of being a leader who is always going to have all the perks and privileges of power, instead I'm going to serve that changes everything, and all this will very quickly go away. What happens is is women are afraid that if I submit, if I do that Bible thing, that I'm going to get run over. I'm going to get just treated like a doormat, and so I'd better get my resistance up. I'd better be ready to fight. I'd better be ready to never give an inch, because if I give an inch, he's going to take a mile. And then the husband comes in, and he's leading like Christ. He loves her like he loves himself. Paul talks about that in Ephesians 5.25. He's serving her. He's giving himself up for her. He's doing everything he can to honor her, very quickly those defenses begin to melt away. Then how hard is it going to be for her to follow that kind of leadership? She's going to willingly follow that kind of leadership in the same way that we willingly follow Jesus' leadership. The currency that leaders spend and the currency that determines your leadership capacity is trust. The more trust you have, the more you can lead. And every time you do selfish and self-centered things, you start using up your currency. And before very long, to use an old-fashioned banking term, you start bouncing checks because you don't have the reserves of trust there. But when the quarterback gets in the huddle and the wide receiver is saying, hey, you got to throw it to me, you got to throw it to me, I'm wide open, I'm wide open, I'm wide open. And every wide receiver is always wide open, at least they think they are. The quarterback says, hey, listen, we're going to run the ball on this play that's going to pull the defense in. I'll get you the ball. I'll get you the ball. When when the wide receiver trusts the quarterback 
then he can block for the running back on this play because he knows on the next play he's going to get the ball when the trust is there. But if the quarterback never throws him the ball because the quarterback's padding his stats, so he's maybe dumping it off to little bitty short passes that look good on the stat sheet but don't really get the team down the field, then after a while the wide receiver starts saying, you know, you always say you're going to throw me the ball. You don't ever throw me the ball. I don't ever get the ball. I don't trust you. And so at the highest level then when a team is behind and it's the two-minute drill and the quarterback sticks his head in the huddle and says, all right, we're going to go down the field now. We're going to win this game right now. When everybody in that huddle trusts that quarterback, then everybody pulls together and does their job because it's not about any one person. It's about the team. And that, that's what Jesus did. He gave himself up for the team. The biblical word for that is church. And, and the husband gives himself up for the team. The biblical word for that is family. And so that's what we're looking for in leadership. You think about what Paul said in Philippians 2, and the same passage where he is painting Jesus as giving up the throne of heaven and coming and living as a man and, and living as a man in obscurity and dying, and not just dying, but dying on the cross. He, he, t- he started that passage by saying, let this mind be in you that was in Christ. And then he concludes that thought by saying, go work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That doesn't mean find the way to God that's right for you, the way that that gets batted around in, by false teachers and denominations and things like that. When he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, he says, look at this model of Jesus and then go find out how to live that model in your own life. Because Philippians 3 is all about following that model of Jesus. Paul gave up everything, everything that meant everything to anyone in the world. He gave up because he wanted to know Jesus a little better and be a little more certain of his salvation with Jesus because it was so precious to him. If you, We're going to talk about that kind of model of leadership secularly, and I know this one will be near and dear to you. Um, there's two probably really famous pictures of Teddy Roosevelt. One is where he's standing on the stump, and he's got kind of his hand tucked in his vest, and he's wearing the suit. He's campaigning for presidency. But probably the more iconic one is him leading the charge up San Juan Hill. And, you know, out in front of the Rough Riders and, you know, saber in hand, and he's doing everything. And there's not many years between those two events in his life. And that kind of leadership, the world scoffs at today. It says it's foolish for a man to get out there and and risk risk all of this for the sake of the people behind him. But part of leadership is being inspirational. Jesus coming and dying for us is not just fulfilling the technical terms of of the law of justification and righteousness. Jesus coming and dying for us is meant to be inspirational to us as well, because that's exactly how Paul uses it in Philippians 2 and 3. Your struggle is not in vain because Jesus has already done more. As your leader, as someone who loves you, as, as you brought in in Ephesians 5, he loves his church. And that analogy that you asked the the young men about, would you take a bullet for this woman? And this is a complete other rabbit hole we could go down, but Jesus did that. And maybe that's a question we ought to be asking our young women. You know, would this guy take a bullet for you before you marry him? And he says he loves you. That's great. But have you ever seen evidence of that? Well, there's evidence that Jesus loves us because of everything he gave up, because of what he was willing to die for. And the only thing he asks of us initially is to develop that kind of attitude within ourselves because he's trying to give us something better. And that's really what good leadership does. 
I think that's exactly right. And the Hebrew writer makes use of that by saying that we look to Jesus who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. So Jesus is inspirational. That's part of leadership is that we inspire our followers to follow. And Jesus does ask, like we talked about, the currency of leadership is trust. And the beginning of everything with Jesus is that we trust him and we trust the way he's going to lead us to God and build our relationship with God. And there's lots of man-made options and lots of very different ways of being spiritual and trying to have a relationship with God or trying to have a relationship with the gods, plural. There were lots of those options in the New Testament world. There were lots of those options in the Old Testament world. There's always going to be a lot of options here. We're going to have to trust that Jesus' way is the way. Trust is so essential. Men need to look at that and realize I must build trust in my followers if I'm going to be able to lead them. Remember, a leader who doesn't have followers trusting and walking behind him is just a man out taking a walk. You have to have trust if your followers are going to march in in step behind you. That leads us into one of the questions there on the sheet. When we look at America in 2022, and the reason why I reached out to you about being on this episode is I thought you had an excellent lesson on why the church is still relevant. There's been a host of articles that have come out lately about religion in decline, particularly the Christian faith in decline in our country. And I've done episodes of the YouTube program. You've been on that program during the Revelation series, but I've done episodes on on the things that are wrong with contemporary worship. If your church is doing this, you need to rethink where you're at kind of thing. But what we see is that the contemporary entertainment model has failed, that... You know, when you look at generationally kids that are raised in that kind of model where the emphasis is on entertainment rather than building faith in God, they, they just don't stay with their faith, that they go off into the world and they find a more legitimate form of entertainment more often than not. But it's also in decline among congregations that are really trying to do what the Bible says and, and really trying to get back to, to the basics of the Bible. It occurs to me that the, the failure of leadership is not always with the leaders of the congregation. The reason for decline tends to be leadership in the home. We're not prioritizing the right things. When you got ready to preach a sermon called, Why Church? Why do you still need church? Why is it relevant? What ways do our men need to man up and be leaders? I think we'd be helped in a couple of different ways. First, we, we do need to challenge men to be leaders and not just pew sitters. Part of this, then, we're going to have to do a better job of overturning the cultural construct that church is really for women. It's only for choir boys. They're the only ones that go to church. I think there are some things that we can do in church that would help with some of that, like some of our language. Sometimes I hear people talk about we need to fall in love with Jesus. That's a disaster. That, that Biblically and theologically, that is absolutely bankrupt language. We do not fall in love with God. That's entirely inappropriate, but it's also extremely off-putting to men. That kind of talk is very difficult and very awkward for men. How do I fall in love with Jesus when I am a man and he is a man? That sort of talk is very, very difficult and will cause men to say, church is not for me. We have songs 
that sound pretty much like Jesus is my boyfriend and I want to touch his face and I love you and those those kinds of songs you could basically just substitute in the name of your boyfriend and the hymn would sing just the same those those songs are theologically weak as water and they're awkward for men to sing and they cause men to say church is not for me. How about singing Onward Christian Soldiers? How about preaching about David and Daniel and talking about how strong men serve God? We really should look at where we are today and say somehow we missed it because in the Bible, in the book of Acts for example, Luke always gives the number of men and men are leading the church, and men are following God, and it's always men, and now church is for women, and we always have more women than men, and women are responsive and men are not. What happened? How did we get upside down like that? And I do think some of that is what the culture wants to say, but if we would talk and preach and teach and model authentic masculinity and talk about strong men have faith, you know, all men need a moral compass. What I will do and what I won't do, who I am, what life is about. Jerry, do you see the hunger for that in all the books that are being released now that are trying to provide that? Ryan Holiday and the Rise in Stoicism. You see the Art of Manliness blog, Jordan Peterson, the stuff that he's writing. People are looking for a moral compass. I see a number of accounts on Instagram that talk about real manliness. Maybe I should I need to drop my voice, real manliness, and, and what it means to be a man. There's so much confusion about that in a day where we've got men who aren't even sure which bathroom to use. Men are looking for help, and the church should stand up and say, we are a beacon of authentic manliness. Come here, and we will show you what manliness is really all about. And the other thing that should be said about that is men always want to be part of, of something that is bigger than themselves. Men want to have lives Amen. that matter and of worth and of power and of influence. And so the church should be saying, come here and be part of the thing that matters the very most and that will give you opportunity to do something that reaches into eternity. That kind of talk is what will draw men to church and keep men in church and in a way that all the fluff and stuff, the food, fun, and fellowship thing that's going on in so many of these community churches, that as you said, it has no staying power. The devil always puts on a better show. And if that's the only thing that we're going to offer, oh, yeah. eventually men are going to say, I'm not getting up early on Sunday morning. So we have to offer something better than that. And I think authentic manliness is a card that we have to play that nobody else is playing. And if we would offer that, we'd be surprised at how many men are drawn to that because God made us to be that way and to be drawn to those kind of you know, that's one of the things that, that we emphasize on this program a lot, and, and the reason why Man Up exists is for the reasons that you just said. I had another podcast before this. It was called A Journey into the Word, and each week we took a different passage, and we, we talked a little bit about it. It had a listenership of about 12, and four of those, or at least five of those, were my family. So <laughs> it was not going well. It was really just white noise. And one of the things that was frustrating me at the time was the cultural war on men, war on masculinity. And I thought, I may not be the, the paragon of physical masculinity, but I really value hard work. I value 
going out and being part of something that's bigger than myself, that I can look at it and say, me and a group of people that had a like mind, we went and did something special when we did this. And one of the things that that I see that congregations that really thrive is an emphasis on service, not entertainment, not drawing people in with, oh, this is how much you can learn to love Jesus. It is, this is how you can serve Jesus by serving his people. This is how you can you, you can wake up every day with a purpose because you got brothers and sisters in Christ that need you, and you can go out that day and you can do something for them. And it might be helping them financially. It might be helping them with, with work around the house. It might be getting a group of young men together to go out and do something at the church building. But when you get men to serve, it gets the blood moving. And if you want to have passion whether it's your family or it's your congregation, if you want to have real passion in your life, that you will not have it until you invest yourself in something. That's absolutely right. When we give ourselves away, when we devote ourselves, we're really alive and we are really fully being what men ought to be. That is something that Teddy Roosevelt, you mentioned him earlier, he's he's such a hero of mine, And he always wondered whether he could do that on the battlefield. Could he lead in that kind of terribly dangerous and crucial situation? Roosevelt always looked to that moment. He called that his crowded hour when he was able to just lead those men in such a very dangerous situation. So much was going on there, and he felt like he had proved himself. And that gave him the confidence to go forward and to do all kinds of incredible things like be president of the United States. He won the Nobel Peace Prize for negotiating a peace between Russia and Japan. They were at war. Just all kinds of things, the digging of the Panama Canal, all kinds of things happened during TR's presidency because he saw himself as a leader. And that moment for him really crystallized so much. And I think men today, in a very similar way, they're looking for their crowded hour. They're looking for the opportunity to give themselves to something greater than themselves, to to lead in a powerful kind of way. One of the band of brothers, men that Stephen Ambrose wrote so much about and then the HBO series made so famous, he says, young men always say, I always wonder if I could do what you did. Men want to know can I lead? Could I have done that? Would I have been willing to go up that beach under that kind of horrendous fire and for my fellow man and for the home front, the women and children back home, would I have been willing to do that? That's what men ask. And mm-hmm. one of the things that we want to do in the church is equip men to lead their families and to lead their spiritual family and then give them opportunities to do that. The devil will make sure that the battle is joined. He will not be quiet when our men are growing in leadership and influence and strength in Christ. Those men will rise up and lead in a great way. You mentioned that leadership is not a gene. It's not innate to us. That It can be developed. But you got to realize what kind of leader you can be. I mean, not everybody's going to be a Teddy Roosevelt. Some guys are going to be Winston Churchill's. Some guys are going to be, I think, another great example of leadership is Ronald Reagan. You know, some guys are, are going to be the inspirational guy. JFK, a pretty good example of that. I referenced him a few weeks ago on the program when, when he stood before the nation and said, we're going to go to the moon by the end of this decade, not because these things are easy, but because they are hard. You have the inspiration. You've got the guys that lead by doing. 
as a man, this is an off-the-sheet question. How do I look at my son, who's an empath, he's a very sensitive child, but he's also willing to step out and take some risks every once in a while. How do I use what is his character and develop from that a leader? I think that's a great question, and it goes to the essence of knowing your kid and knowing what's in there and what's not in there. So if your child is not going to be out front and walks into the room and just immediately the party starts centering around this individual, they're the biggest personality in the room, and if anything went wrong, everybody would just look to that person just automatically. You need to help your child see his or her personality their abilities and what they can do and how they can lead and be influential, particularly for Christ, with what God has given them. And so I think rule number one is I'm not going to try to make my child into something that they are not. That's a mistake. Instead, we want to we want to water and develop what is in there because there are lots of different ways to lead. And there will be times where we need somebody waving their arms out front and, and shouting, and everybody is following that person. But there will also be times where we will need a very quiet person who will quietly say, I've done the math, and here's the data, and this is what we need to do if we're going to bring Apollo 13 home and those guys aren't going to die. And so you need both kinds of leaders. It doesn't help when when it's a math problem, to wave your arms and shout. And and so we just need, we're going to have to help it. our kid be what our kid is and see that they're going to have a place. So in the kingdom of God, we need everybody. I think about this particularly with our young women. A young man gets up and leads a song on a Wednesday night, and what that means is he starts the first syllable of the first word, and then the rest of the congregation jumps right in it. We're trying to help him, and we're he can't even beat time, and so he barely managed to stutter out the first syllable of Be With Me, Lord, and we all sang with him, and then everybody crowds up after church and says, Great job! Oh, great job! And we're patting him on the back, and we should do that. But what about the 15-year-old girl who was a helper today in a Bible class with three-year-olds, and they were crying and snotty-nosed and tired and difficult, and she was in that classroom, and she helped that teacher have some sanity and managed to get across some ideas of the Word of God, nobody crowded around her and patted her on the back. And that may be one of the reasons why women look at the pulpit and say, I want a piece of that. I Nobody notices that I took food to the family that was grieving. Nobody noticed that we went over and cleaned the house of this woman whose husband is dying of cancer and she has to be at his bedside 24-7. So as we come back to, I, I slipped off and put on my girl dad hat, I'm sorry about that. Men, just because you don't preach, just because you don't lead singing doesn't mean you're not vital in the kingdom. We need to pay attention and give encouragement and affirmation for the things that you are. Yeah. So I think both of those things go with how do we develop leadership. I may not be leading in a down front sort of way, but that doesn't mean that I'm not going to have a chance to lead, and that's just as important as the down front guys. In fact, the reality is sometimes that's even more important. Every man's gifts and talents all go towards the whole, and we need all of them. We need everybody. Well, and isn't that what's been wrong with a lot of the worship model lately, particularly as we've 
congregations have tried to adopt more and more of that contemporary worship model. You know, the focus is on the preacher. We got to wow them with the right PowerPoint. We got to wow them with the right sound system. At the end of the day, people, and you said it earlier, people want to be part of something bigger. And it gets to the, to one of the fundamental things that I remember from a lot of the leadership books I used to read, and that is the cog is every bit as important as the machine. And Paul said that when you, that literally to first, in First Corinthians, he's talking to the brothers in Corinth about don't despise those who you think are less than you, that the body is not just seeing, it's also hearing, it's also smelling, and if the hand says to the foot, I don't have any need of you, or the ear says, I'm not an eye, so I'm not that important, it seems to me the whole thing stops working because people don't see that they belong, not just in church, you were talking about pew sitters earlier, that they don't just belong in church, they are the church. And if you don't see yourself as vital to this organization and this group of people as vital to you, then you're missing something very basic. One of the things that you and Warren always stressed in the the three or four years that I got to go to YPW to workshop, the why because that, so. we felt like that was cutting some guys out who really wanted to enhance and and build their skills in the pulpit and and as they work with with a local church and so it's the West Side Preaching Conference now. One of the things that is so instrumental about that kind of mentorship is that it takes you back to basics. The most basic thing that a preacher can do is be involved in the lives of the people so that you know what to preach. Be connected to the people of God. You're not somebody that stands above them or apart from them. It's not the preacher in the congregation. You're just a part of the congregation. And when you start to think of yourself as separated from that or up on some sort of pedestal or an ivory tower, then all of the leadership model begins to change. And the same is true with elders, and the same is true with men and their families, that if you don't invest yourself in this, then you're not going to really want to be part of it, as we said earlier. That's exactly right. But what are some of the basics that you feel like we're missing? I I think that's a super important part of preaching in both Timothy and Titus, which maybe are the, the, the most the most devoted books of the New Testament to the idea of what it is to work with people in a preaching kind of role. The the two ideas there is that the preacher needs to teach sound doctrine, okay? But the other idea is he needs to build his influence with his people so that he can teach sound doctrine. Those two things have to go together. And sometimes that's a challenge when you're preaching because... You need to spend some time in the office developing those lessons so that you can teach and preach accurately sound doctrine in a relevant and powerful sort of way. But you can't spend all your time in the ivory tower. You've got to spend your time as well with people so that you know who they are and what they need. You've got to build your influence so then you have the right to teach. I think there's an ethos, pathos, logos model that says something about some of that, and there's an, an awful lot of validity to that. And then the old line about people will never care how much you know until they know how much you care, there's a lot of validity to that. And preachers from Timothy and Titus are supposed to build both ends of that. And, and maybe some of that goes back to what we talked about. The currency of leadership is trust. If I'm going to get in the pulpit at Westside and I'm going to say some hard things about changes that we need to make and how we do differently, then the people have to trust me that I care about them and that what I really want is their best interest and that I'm really trying to help them, not just exercise my ego on them and rant and rail and beat them down. 
That's going to be essential if they have to have that kind of trust if I'm going to be able to lead in that sort of fashion. I remember a question that used to burn in my mind a lot when I was starting as, as a preacher. How do you call people out of a secular world when that secular world is so much more enticing? And one of the things that I've learned by watching guys like Dee and you and, and people that were good elders is that you don't call them because, hey, I've got a better carrot than the world does. I mean, that is part of it, that there's a better carrot. But people are not going to see that if they don't trust you. And that's one of the reasons why living a godly life as an example and living with joy as opposed to being upset all the time about politics or whatever is upsetting in your life and living with joy even in difficult circumstances is such a powerful testimony on the transformative relationship that we have with Jesus. He's my king, I'm his soldier, and I'm a better man because I'm his soldier. When you stop and you think about building that trust, it really does help us answer the question of, why do we need church? What does a leader bring to that question? In a time when people have gotten used to worshiping with Zoom and things like that, why do we need church, and what can leadership help us understand about that? Well, we need church for a number of reasons, not the least of which is we're just flat commanded to do that. And sometimes people will say something along the lines of, you know, well, besides the command to assemble, well, let's just start there. Hebrews 10.25 is more than enough. If God tells us to do it, we ought to just do it. And sometimes as a preacher or teacher, I come behind those commands and I say, now look, here's the rationale for that. Here's why this is good for us. Here's why God would tell us to do that. And that's important. And there certainly are times when God, for example, even does that himself. In Ephesians 6, children obey your parents in the Lord, and this will allow you to live long in the land. Mm -hmm. And so God, you know, here's why an elder needs to have a family, because if he can't lead his family, he can't lead the church. God does some of that. I get it. I get it. But we don't ever want to get in the place where if we don't understand why God told us to do that, then, oh, I'm out. I'm not going to do that. So God told us to, to assemble, we ought to assemble, period, full stop. Beyond that, though, where the Hebrew writer is telling us to do that, he says not to neglect me, the meeting together, as some do, but encouraging one another. Our presence together encourages me, encourages you. Even if you are just a pew sitter, that's a starting point. And that's better than not being a pew sitter because I see that you are trying in your relationship with God, that you care, you cared enough to show up today. And if we learned anything in the pandemic, we learned that online is better than nothing, but it is certainly not better than being physically together. I think we have some wonderful enhancements to the opportunities to teach and preach and encourage one another through Zoom and other online podcasts, things like what I'm doing right now. But ultimately, I want to be with my brethren. I want to be able to hug their neck. I want to be able to shake their hands. I want to be able to look in their eyes. And that kind of encouragement comes when we are together. So there's a lot to that. Why do we need the assembly? And a lot of that has to do with our encouragement of one another. I need to be thinking not just in terms of what it does for me, but what it does for you. And and as an aside here, that's a real breakdown of the I'm going to stay home and watch church. Because if I stay home and watch church in my jammies, then I can get some of the goodies, okay? I can listen to that sermon. But all of the people who went to church, they don't get anything from me watching. I'm not encouraging them. That's a one-way street. It just came to me. I didn't do anything. Gave nothing. 
but I got everything. That's not going to work long term. Well, and those two elements, gratitude and service, the, the ones that you were just illustrating, those were the two that I thought of as well. It gives us an opportunity to serve. It gives us an opportunity to show our gratitude. It gives us an opportunity to give back to people. All of those things integrate us into the whole. We become a part of the culture. You hear people say a lot of times about congregations and why they left. Well, I just didn't like the culture. Okay, church culture is made up of people. And you're as much a part of the culture of a congregation as anybody else in the congregation. And if you want the culture of a congregation to be different, then maybe that's your place to lead. Maybe that's your place to stand up and say, you know what, I don't have to be an elder, but I can go get a group of young boys together and we can mow the yard of some elderly people. I'll throw out my own sports metaphor. I always liken it to Monday morning quarterbacks, that we can always see what's wrong, but nobody wants to step out and be the solution because that requires serving. And the most basic, the most fundamental way that we can serve our brethren is actually just getting there and worshiping alongside them so that we're a source of encouragement for them. And when you think about that and you think about how much one individual can change the culture um, or a small group of individuals can change the culture of a big organization. I, I think about that and I think about Steve Jobs and how Apple really just hasn't been the same company since he died because it wasn't about the products. It was about his vision of leadership. I'm not going to release anything before it's ready, and he had some misses. I'm not going to release anything before it's time. I'm going to have a clear vision for where each of these products fits in the roadmap of the company. And the culture of Apple, whether you like it or not, really, really looked like Steve Jobs. I think one of the real success stories for congregations coming out of this pandemic, because some of them are are saying, you know, we lost our preacher, we lost 30% of our of our membership. Others are coming out of this pandemic and out of this time of uncertainty and all the political divide in our country, and they're better and stronger and, and even bigger numerically than they were before they went in. And the real difference that I see when I do a breakdown of the situation is the ones that emphasized a culture of togetherness. Up here in Oregon, we had, at one point we got to having, I think it was five services on a Sunday just because we couldn't have more than 25 people in an assembly. We had to have five services on a Sunday. Two guys every Sunday would step up and preach sermons for me because there is no way I could preach five times on a Sunday and do a Zoom Bible class on a Saturday. There's just no way I could do it. So I would preach three times, and two other brothers would step up, and this went on for a couple of months, and they would preach two of those sessions for a couple of months. And you know what? They did it because they wanted to serve. They wanted to take some pressure off me. They wanted me to be a more effective preacher and an evangelist. And they knew I wasn't going to be giving my best if I'm preaching five 30-minute sermons on a Sunday. But when you stop and you think about that, and you get back to culture, and you think about evangelism, and you think about, at essence, the thing that we need our people to see at its most basic is that being at worship service is, yes, it's a command, but if I have to command you to be there, you're really missing the point anyway. And that is gratitude and connected to this body. How do we change our culture as congregations and how can that affect evangelism? I know you said evangelism, you got a rant. I'm not even going to ask you the follow-up questions to this. I'm just going to let you go and I'll drop in with, with, with commentary along the way. Well, church culture makes such a difference in evangelism because 
when eventually whatever you're doing evangelistically to get non-Christians around the gospel, to learn the gospel, eventually we want them to connect to our faith community and to become part of the church. And so the culture of the church, the way the church feels, the way we operate, and I'm not talking about the New Testament pattern, the five acts of worship. I'm talking about how the church functions, how we do church. Either that's going to repel people or that's going to help us retain people. So culture is really, really important. And I think in many ways, sometimes our insider jargon, where we're just not aware of how an outsider sees and perceives what's going on. We just kind of have that thinking, if they keep coming long enough that it'll make sense to them, that can really alienate people and make outsiders uncomfortable. We need to make our worship assembly a positive, a positive for our longtime members. It's organized, it's well thought out, it's planned, it's not haphazard, it's not slipshod. Small churches sometimes need to be careful about that. When I'm in gospel meetings, sometimes with a very small group, it can be very, very informal. Somebody just, I was with a group and a guy got up on Sunday morning about two minutes before time. He said, well, it's about time to get started. Joe, why don't you be picking out some songs? And hey, Fred, could you, why don't you wait on the table today? It was just very, very informal. And I thought, everybody in this room thinks that's just fine because we all know Fred and Bill and Joe, but hey, those two visitors in the back who are looking for a church, they're like, what? This, these people didn't even, even plan who's going to serve and what's going to, who has what role today. They're just throwing it together two minutes before we start. What's going on here? See? So we need to be, we need to be careful about that. It's got to be good for our folks, but it's also got to be good for people who are visiting today. And we don't ever want a situation to break out, somebody to do something, somebody to say something, where someone who brought a visitor, they've worked months and months and months to convince this co-worker, to convince this neighbor, to convince this relative, to convince this friend to come to church with them. This was the Sunday that finally that non-Christian came, and then this embarrassing thing happens. And so then on the way home, they're apologizing, and they're saying to the visitor, normally that doesn't happen. Normally... Nobody would ever say that. We can't have any of that kind of thing where we explain it or try to explain it away. That That's unacceptable, and it is off-putting to visitors, and it won't work, and it won't fly. Our culture has to be good for us. People have to get up on Sunday morning and say, hey, it's Sunday. I get to go to church. My friend Jason Harden says Sunday is the best day of the week, and that's a pretty good goal for churches is to make Sunday the best day of the week. That doesn't mean, I want to be clear, it doesn't mean the preaching is cotton candy and, and blowing sunshine and everybody's going to go to heaven and everything's just wonderful. No, sometimes the best day of the week is I was rebuked and admonished from the scriptures and I had to do some repenting. And that's what made it such a good day is that I knew the preacher loved me and cared enough about me to tell me some hard truths so that I could be right with God. That's good. That's In fact, that's very, very good. But it's got to be good. It's got to be good logistically. Like I said, it's arranged, it's organized. We know what we're doing. The the singing needs to be good. The preaching needs to be good. The praying needs to be good. It needs to be the best day of the week. And the visitors, we, we need to, to tone that and fix that and adjust that so that visitors will see that and see that it's good and that, that we care and that we care about them. I love it when one of our guys is leading the opening prayer and he prays for the visitors who are with us today. Man, if I'm a visitor and I got mentioned in the prayer, I'm like, hey, that's kind of cool. They they know I'm here and they're interested in me. So oh, yeah. there's just... That's all part of a culture that says 
we want this to be good because God deserves our best and because we want to edify one another and we want to be attracting those who don't yet know what we know about Jesus. All of that rolls together in this idea of Sunday's going to be the best day of the week. Leadership is preparedness. Make it something that when people get done with or you come to the end of your part of that service, people think, that guy really cared about leading us. To me, that's what's really missing in a lot of the culture. And when it comes to one-on-one evangelism, if we're just out there fighting culture wars, and I know a lot of our guys, and not just our guys, a lot of our women mistake fighting the wars of culture and getting involved in the wars in, in culture over the transgender or homosexuality or abortion and somehow being evangelistic, those things are not evangelistic. If you want to solve the problems of culture, you got to start leading people to Jesus and starting with a message of, here's Jesus, you don't know him, but I sure wish you did. And then we can address those other things along the way. But if we're out there telling everybody, here's 15 reasons why you're going to hell, they probably think, well, I can see one big thing that may be your shortcoming. And that culture of evangelism really comes back to loving and leading I think, without any question, we need to to build on a base of influence, and that, again, that comes back to this idea of trust. We need to build relationships with people so they will trust us when we come to them to say some hard things, even if we have to say some hard things about the culture. But I would completely concur. Evangelism is not about bashing everybody and tearing everybody down and telling everybody that they're all going to hell, and we're kind of glad about it. And if you're really nice to me, maybe I might tell you something about how to avoid going to hell. No, that's that's not what evangelism is about. And if we see evangelism in those kinds of ways, then evangelism becomes about us and about our ego, and I know something you don't know, and I'm better than you, and that's that's just the path of the Pharisees, and Jesus was not best friends with them. I checked. So we need to be careful that we are understanding the role that we play, and that is to point people to Jesus, not to ourselves, and not even to an institution. I have been amazed at how interested people are in Jesus and how interested people are in the Bible and how uninterested people are in organized religion. So as that goes then, I need to be aware of that in our culture And I need to ride that wave. I need to ride that wave. If people are interested in Jesus, then let's talk about Jesus. If people are interested in the Bible, let's talk about reading the Bible. Do you read the Bible? Do you understand the Bible? Could I share a Bible reading schedule with you? Could we read the Bible together? There's a general feeling most people have. I ought to know more about the Bible. I wish I knew more about the Bible. Let's play on that. Having somebody come and tell me how wrong I am, how everything I've ever believed and hold near and dear to me is completely mistaken, and that I'm a complete idiot and fool, I'm not interested in that very much. Well, this turned into an interview, and I knew it would, that I wasn't expecting. Mark always has an outside take on things that brings a lot of wisdom that simplifies the big question. If you want to know why church is important, one of the key reasons is... It makes us better followers of Jesus. It makes us better leaders, better fathers, better husbands, better evangelists. But we also need to strive to be those things so that we can be a better church. Mark, I love you, buddy. You don't disappoint. Mark's written several great books. Romans for Everyone. I absolutely love that commentary on Romans. It's helped me with some very difficult sermons on Romans 8 lately. 
Also, Understanding Apocalyptic Literature, A Guide to the Book of Revelation. And that, to me, is a book that every Christian ought to be reading if you want to understand Revelation. It's not really about the book of Revelation so much as it is helping you understand how the imagery in the book works, because it's not really that unusual. There's a lot of apocalyptic literature in the world. Mark has his own podcast with the Westside Congregation, and you can find his sermons on justchristians.com, which the website for Westside Church of Christ. Did I miss anything, Mark? Anything that people need to be aware of? I have the most amazing Scottish Terrier in the world, and I genuinely believe that everything's better with a good cup of coffee. Yeah, I was going to say, and he makes a mean cup of coffee. (laughs) Jared, great to be with you. I appreciate the opportunity today. Thanks so much. Thank you for your time. Thank you for being here and encouraging us. And as always, guys, from all of us here at Man Up to all of you out there, have a good day. God bless and man up. Dismissed!